Operation Snafu Podcast, Episode 1, 845, Synchronized Watches in 3, 2, 1, Mark. Snafu Bolt Action Podcast. Uh, I'm Rick, your host, with Jeff. Hello. Pat. Greetings. And Dale. Hey, everybody. This is our first episode, or episode 1.2. We may have had some technical difficulties with the first one, or your host decided that it wasn't worth editing after all of our content became expired. So we're back again for a new episode. Um, we have some cool stuff to talk about because we just went to attorney. Um, we're all just starting out with this, so it's kind of cool that we're getting into it now. Um, we have lots of new stuff to talk about because we're all kind of new to this. So with that, why don't we start with Dale, what are you working on right now? Um, currently on my uh, painting table is the last bit of my original order with Warlords. So um, I play Imperial Japanese. I've got uh, 10 Imperial Japanese Army veterans uh, sitting there. The um, five-man HQ blister, an MMG team, uh, medium mortar team, and then the heavy howitzer team. And then their bases are off um, drying us uh, beside them. Uh, because I like to uh, I like to paint my bases separately from my minis. So, and then in the queue is um, a big warehouse uh, terrain piece that, um, that I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to get started on. That's not for bolt action specifically. It's for a commission I'm doing for um, a guy, but I think it might actually work out for bolt action. So if I like it, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna pick up a few for a couple of boards we'll be working on. So that's where I'm at right now. Uh, mostly because I'm waiting for, you know, a month and a half for Warlord to get me my next set of stuff, but it hasn't come yet. So what can you do? I'm curious, what's in your five man HQ? Um there's a uh Kempatai officer, which is a special guy the Imperial Japanese get it similar to a commissar. He doesn't shoot people, though. He just, um, you get to reroll your green tests. There's um, a forward observer. There's a medic. Um, I think that there's, and there's probably like a first and second lieutenant or something. I can't quite recall. So you don't have to buy a separate blister for your forward observer, which is kind of handy. Um, yeah, it was kind of nice that it got it. But I think they do have a forward observer and something else in one of the uh, blisters that they offer. So, Cool. Jeff, what are you working on? Uh, at the moment, I've finished my French army, so my order of Germans just arrived, finally, from Warlord. Uh, and uh, another store here in the States. It's some Gebirgsjager, that's the German mountain troops. A box of assault engineers, a couple uh, Hanomags, a Hetzer, and a Luke Storm armored car. So I'm currently clipping through and trimming up these Gebirgsjager. And these are absolutely gorgeous miniatures. It's a fairly new kit, I think. Um... But they're beautiful, well-detailed. I almost wish I'd bought only these. 
Are they one piece or multiple pieces? For the most part, uh, they're metal, which I actually prefer. I think the casting looks better on them. Um, but uh, they're mostly two pieces, full body and then head. Uh, looks like the sergeant for each squad, though, uh, comes with his head attached. So two pieces for the most part. But they've got the uniforms, the weapons, full equipment packs on their back. Lots of detail here, and nothing, you know, no weird monkey faces here. They look pretty good. Is this um, is this going to be like another themed force around something in particular, or is it just these look sweet and I want to paint some Germans? <laughs> Mostly these look sweet and I wanted to paint some Germans. Okay. Uh, it, it will be a late war German force. Uh, I've got a lot of winter troops to supplement because they only make so many Gebirgsjager. So I've got the winter special weapons teams, uh, the winter mortar, the winter medium machine gun, the winter Panzerschreck, winter sniper, and winter flamethrower guy. Uh, and I supplemented that with a Nebelwerfer, which I think is going to be a lot of fun and probably not terribly effective, but look really cool while doing it, which is kind of how I roll. It looks sweet on uh, on Rick's uh, Japanese beach board, all those winter troops. <laughs> well, you know, we... Uh, we got, yeah, there's no way for it. <laughs> we'll paint ourselves tan quick, sure. <laughs> hey, Pat, what are you working on? Uh, right now I've got 22 paratroopers that I'm trying to figure out how to do camouflage on their jackets, which is just not going happily. Their jackets are pretty much covered by their backpacks, and their the paratroopers, at least for British, which is my army, uh, only the jackets were camouflaged. They didn't do. They did their normal khaki pants, but just the jackets were camouflaged, which is such a small surface area that the camouflage is not going smoothly. But I will have their uh, traditional red berets, which will certainly make them iconic enough on the table to look them be paratroopers. And after that, um, you mentioned something about getting a jungle board together. So I've got some Gurkhas that need some painting, and then some uh, some what are they? Chindits, I believe they're called. The uh, jungle riflemen. So that's about what I'm sitting on. And uh, once I get done with that, my British army is complete. So I'll be looking to see what I'm going to do next. Yeah, do you have any ideas of what you're going to do next? Uh, Americans would be easy because I have half their motor pool because I got the British army. But uh, I'd like to do something, something from the Axis side as well too. I'm not quite sure what's going to be with that. Yeah, that makes sense. I it's. Kind of in the, I'm in the same boat as you, where I'm wrapping up my my early war German army. I could do more Germans, but why would I do more Germans right now? I've got a thousand points ready, so I ordered a whole bunch of Marines, and they will be here. I don't know who the heck knows when they'll be here. It's it kind of depends on international shipping. So um, I know we're all still waiting on stuff from Warlord, but yeah. And then then my other big project, since I'm doing Marines, would be to do the jungle board that I'm working on. So I'm. Starting with the, uh, I'm I'm collecting aquarium palm trees, which is kind of a weird way to go. Cheap plastic parts um, that I'll airbrush and make look, hopefully make look good. Um, and then I'm going to try and do some, you know, some small Japanese village hut type things. Maybe some rice paddies. We'll see if I get into the rice paddies. But otherwise, uh, it'll be like just tall grass and stuff like that is my goal. But hopefully we'll make it work. Um, I'm going to have to play around and see how it works with terrain. Going to go with the uh, teddy bear for tall grass? No, I think I'm going to stick with all aquarium grass, so all plastic, um, just from a standpoint of 
I don't think teddy bear fur will work for what I'm looking for because I'm looking for kind of a teddy, teddy bear fur looks more like long grass. And then I think some of the Asian style, like landscape, I won't even call it landscape, but you know, kind of what is there is a little bit more long blade and a little bit wider blade grass. So it's more like bushes than it is like just long grass. And that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah, I could see that. The, um, the one thing that has probably got me that feels differently now that we're playing bolt action as opposed to other other games that we have in the past is this seeming lag time between when I order something and when I receive it. And so I feel like I have to plan out my hobby schedule like two or three steps in advance. How long is it going to take me to finish what I'm working on based on how long the next stuff I'm planning on working on is going to take to get here. It's just this weird kind of in-between. We haven't had to deal with this before. Um, even with some of the stuff that I've, I've picked up from overseas with other terrain projects and things like that, for some reason with bolt action, maybe it's the holidays or something, but this last order is just taken forever. I would agree it's the holidays. Um, I've been having kind of a rolling order with Warlord. It's a pretty reliably two weeks, but then once we got to this holiday thing, it's, you know, we're talking a month to six weeks. It, when you get outside the holiday season, I think that two week isn't too out, isn't too ridiculous. Same thing if you like eBay, you're still looking at like a week. But there's not a lot of stores that carry it locally where you can just go pick something up at a brick and mortar and take it home with you that day. So that, from that sense, I understand the disappointment there. Yeah, our local stores are missing out on some, some quick little you know incentive buys. But oh well. I won't name names, but we have one store that does sell it, but it's at like a twenty percent markup for some reason. I'm not sure if they're playing paying the EU VAT on it or something, but I, I would I won't buy from them just for that reason alone. So um, I'll pitch in. There's one close to me that their their stock of bolt action isn't huge. They're mostly uh, you know your basic stuff, your starter kits and stuff like that. They do sell at a good price. It's just Nobody's buying the, the starter sets right now, so there's no real point to it. By starter sets, you mean like the starter boxes, like the the whatever thousands of, or like the almost thousand point armies? You got it, yeah. The prepackaged by an American army, the prepackaged by a British army, the prepackaged. I think there was a, I don't know, I haven't been into the store in a couple of weeks now. Last time I was there, there was a German one. And then a couple half tracks and maybe a Sherman and an Armored Fury box. The selection wasn't huge, and they certainly didn't have any blisters, but the price that the stuff they had was good. So, Well, I imagine if they have stuff in stock that they'd probably be able to order it for you if you really wanted to do that. I know I know, quite a few of the local stores will actually order for you if they can, So, which isn't a big deal. Which, by the way, if you're unaware, we're actually in Minnesota because we haven't mentioned that yet in this podcast. Um, yes, we, we game at a local store called Dreamers in St. Louis Park on Thursday evenings, if that helps. If anyone wants to stop down, we are typically playing bolt action, but we do play a wide variety of other games. Well, so Jeff and I, and sadly Pat was supposed to come with us, but he wasn't able to make it, participated in a tourney, and I actually was looking for the name of it, and now I can't remember what it was called. Blitz Freeze 2017. There you go, Blitz Freeze 2017. Um, At a local store called Fantasy Flight Games in Burn wherever it is roseville there we go somewhere up north um it's a beautiful facility and they had some beautiful tables we had 16 players or 14 players uh we had 19 signed up because there are 18 signed up because there were nine tables 
uh, and two drops, so 16 players. 16 players, okay. Um, and we kind of, it was our first delve into, like, tournament play, kind of trying to figure out what is going on. I don't know, like, I have no idea what the meta is like. I don't know if, Jeff, if you had any idea what the meta was going to be like going into it. I have an idea what the online meta is, but I had never played against most of these guys, so I had no idea what a local meta would have been like. I feel like the online metas that you've seen kind of pretty much rang true through our, through at least my experience with uh, with the local meta. Yeah, within reason, yeah. There were fewer armored vehicles and tanks. At least I didn't see uh, a disproportionate amount of those, but uh, definitely a lot of veteran infantry and a lot of uh, Germans. I think that's how the war actually went. Also true. And also, you know, it's worth mentioning, um, this would be our first or your first foray into bolt-action tournament gaming. We've actually done tournament gaming for quite a few years. but That is a good point, is that we've actually, all, of, all four of us have actually played in multiple other game systems, um, primarily Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, like, like I mentioned before, we've actually it blew up, and this is kind of where we ended up. We've gone through quite a few other games to get here, but this is where we got. And I think we might be here for for good now. I think this is the best game that we found, and the most traction within our own group of players. So I, I have a feeling this is the this is the game that we'll be sticking with for the long term. I would agree with that assessment. It certainly has been grabbed my attention. You know, I always liked historical stuff, and it was nice that uh, Jeff made the push for us to get into this. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Anytime. I've been wanting to play a World War II miniatures game since I was a little kid, so. <laughs> I do feel like this is kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, unfortunately, some of our some of our guys are like, you lose some of the aspects of fantasy, um, which obviously totally true because this is all historical, so you got little dudes with backpacks and guns, but you don't have any dragons or anything. Maybe Conflict 47 will bring some of that stuff in for some of those guys, but we're not there yet. Yeah, you do lose the uh, magic out of the fantasy, but the hell, it's got tanks. I mean, come on. I don't know. Just, the, um, the whole Air Observer thing feels like magic. <laughs> <laughs> Just give it time. They'll start working in some Return to Castle Wolfenstein stuff into Conflict 47, and you'll get all the magic and zombies and cyber demon things you ever could want. Oh, there's zombies already. I would also like to say that this is much better working with a 28mm scale game as opposed to the other World War II game out there at 15mm. That's just that's just too small for my eyes to try and deal with. Yeah, I, like, I definitely like detail. Um, so back on topic. So Jeff, can you uh, tell, me what, tell me how your first game went at the tourney? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first game was... Uh trying to remember the title. I think it was just a meeting engagement scenario where we were trying to knock down each other's force as much as we could. Uh, I brought my early war French army, which I love that early war French army, but of course the one thing I don't have a real answer for is uh, armor. And my opponent uh, was, I believe, Rick Davis brought his German army, which everything in it was awesome except for his Panzer IV with a heavy anti-tank gun, which I had absolutely no answer to. Um, and we were playing on a city board that was very heavily building. Gorgeous, gorgeous. I think it's, was it Crescent Root or Crescent Rose? Makes Crescent Green. Root. It's absolute yeah. root. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Three, four-story buildings, factory buildings. Uh, I think he had the foreground church was on the table and a double set of railroad tracks running through the center. So it's a beautiful board. Um, the biggest problem with that is I'm running very infantry heavy. 
So I either need to occupy buildings or get funneled into streets. And I initially started occupying buildings until uh, his armored car rolled around the corner and put a couple high explosive shots into the church, which reminded me that infantry inside buildings are sitting ducks in <laughs> bolt-action version 2. So I quickly got out of every building and then got kind of chewed up coming down the streets into the lanes of machine gun fire because I did not bring machine guns myself trying to spread points, which is an error I will not make in the future. Um, I did manage to immobilize his Panzer IV on turn two in the corner. Unfortunately, I couldn't get out of the way before it put a round clean through my light tank, and that was kind of it for armor. I just had to run away from that tank the rest of it. Well, avoid that tank's field of fire for the rest of the game. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I injured a lot of his units, but I only ended up killing maybe two of them, knocking the rest down to well below half strength, but that and a nickel will get you a cup of coffee, and that's about it. Yeah, I played my second game on that table, and we'll go over that in a minute. But, yeah, it was an interesting board. Um, my first game was against Tony and his Desert Rats, uh, so a British army. And uh, having played Pat a couple times over the course of like, like the last couple months, I had seen some of the rules, but I had not run across Vengeance yet, which I thought was an incredibly pretty sweet rule. Um, not quite as good as Japanese, but it was still pretty awesome. Um, and yeah, that is essentially I'll I'll wrap that game up into one sentence. It was uh, he got his preparatory bombardment, I did not, and that pretty much is the whole story. Vengeance is something that's more commonly played when you have heavy veteran forces, and it also kind of lets you get a little uh, a little inadvertent pre measuring with you when you're operating units with that particular ability. Uh, I do plan to use it, but. Basically, our campaign's been early war, so I've been sticking with the the rapid fire, which you're very, very familiar with. Oh yeah, that it, I mean, all of the all of the special rules are really good. It's not that one is better than the other. I just not run into vengeance yet, which still it was pretty great for a uh, pin clearing. So for the noob, or as the noob, what's what is the vengeance rule? Nice and succinctly. Uh, vengeance allows you, if there is a enemy unit within 12 inches, it allows you to check before you take an order test on a D6. On a 4, 5, or 6, you remove one pin before making the order test. On a 1, 2, 3, you do not. Oh, so you get to measure it before you do your orders to see if someone's within 12 inches. Yes, you do. Oh, all right. Hmm, interesting. Cool. Yeah. So, needless to say, I was on the back foot the entire game, and that pretty much he, he picked me apart left and right. He took care of everything. Uh, only shining moment was is he had a, I think he had a Grant on the table, and my Panzer III got to take care of it. Uh, he'd put like six pins on my Panzer, and finally I'm like, I, I can't waste my time doing anything. I'm going to try and make a check to sh just to shoot. And I rolled double ones, cleared all my pins, and then got to shoot at it and killed it flat out which was pretty humorous, other than the fact that I had nothing left, nothing else left on the table. How does uh, Artie Observer do? Did it actually hit? Does mine never do? His, his demolished my army. So on top of him hitting the preparatory bombardment, I had a couple units nearby with my, my first lieutenant sitting right there. Um, and he's like, well, I have to take advantage because he put two pins on literally every unit on, on the table. So I was Because he also got to roll the extra dice there too, which was amazing. Yeah, the uh, British, when they have the prepared bombardment, get to roll 2d6 and pick the result. Yeah, which that, which scenario. was incredible. So so essentially, he'd put two pins on every unit. 
Um, so my lieutenant tried to move as many units away from the marker as possible and got a fair distance away, you know, probably a good 8 to 10 inches away from it, and he rolled a 6 on his on his artery, artery observer. So he, he got a 12-inch 12 12 inch bubble, which pretty much hit everything that I had just gotten out of that bubble. Man, I gotta learn how to do that. I know. I always seem to it pull was, back in my lines. It was pretty awesome. He had he picked me apart pretty quick. It wasn't it was pretty much game over at that point. So So and which, then Which board ahead. were you on? Uh we were on the 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 tall foam board. I don't know how to describe it other than that. It was like a rolling oh, okay, hill. Okay. Yeah, and it had it had the what John Stentz called the Alamo in the middle. It had one building in the middle that was all blown up. But everything else was pretty much wide open. There was like a little river running through it and stuff. It was, it was a pretty wide open board as far as like any any of the other tables. I think it was the most open board out of all of them that I'd seen there. Okay. And so and then so my second game. I'll go into my second game then, and then we'll go back to Jeff's. Was initially so we got set up and it was against uh, another German player, and then they had some kind of snafu with. Hey, look at that snafu. Um, they had some kind of mess up with the win-loss records. So uh, I got paired up again. So I was supposed to play Hugh in a German army. It was an all-vet German army with a Panzer IV. It looked, it looked gross. I think I, was gonna, I would have guaranteed lost that game. And then uh, they're like, hey, by the way, you're going to get to play Eric. And you're going to play on the board to your left. And it happened to be the board that Jeff played his first game on, which I, to Jeff's point was... It's a tough board to play on, but it was actually fun. It was very theatric, and it was I had fun playing on it from that aspect uh, on, an, on the Saturn note is that I lost that game. His, uh, it was uh, Kill the Lieutenant, or no, what is it called? Uh, Jeff, help me out. What is the name of the scenario called? Manhunt. Manhunt, there we go. So Manhunt, so you're trying to kill your the highest officer on your opponent's side, and he has to set up within 12 inches of the middle of the table. Um I had a couple. You have to kill him with assault, which is the tricky part. Otherwise, you can just shoot him off the table and take a draw. Uh, I guess I probably should have tried to go for the draw. Instead, I tried to sneak my assault engineers up the back with a, on a truck, and they did a whole bunch of damage, but they didn't actually get to the lieutenant. Um, so that being said, then his lieutenant jumps in a jeep and then goes and hides in the corner, which pretty much ended the game. So I lost that one as well. Uh, Jeff, how did your game two go? <clears throat> My game two was uh, against uh, Anthony as Italians, um, and in attacker defender scenarios, your Italian player is almost always going to be the defender because they get rerolls to determining their defender or not. Uh, in addition, they get a couple free pieces of hard terrain, to, and they also make it so I can't run onto the board the first turn, which in a manhunt scenario kind of sucks because you, it's really hard to catch up to that guy if you can't run on the first turn. Uh, so anyway, we deployed out. He got in his veteran Bersialagi with double machine guns behind that hard cover. I had to cross a substantial portion of open ground with an infantry force, which seldom goes well for you. Uh, I did get a lot of flanking units into the sides, but of course he still had enough army to slow me down enough uh, that I never really did get... I had one chance, I believe on turn four, uh, if the first order dice out of the bag had been one of mine, I could have assaulted him with a six-man unit that I sent more or less on a suicide run to get his officer. And unfortunately, his dice came out, and his Bersialagi unit that I had simply bypassed turned around and blew the crap out of me at point blank, which is, of course, what he should have done. Uh, no fault to him on that. 
but I never did get another unit close enough to assault his uh, his high-ranking officer. I mean, not even within 18 inches at any point. So, um, what I did have fun in that game, though, is I was running a very heavy infantry force, and I brought a medic along, and I brought a veteran captain along, and I stuck that captain and medic behind three units of regular infantry. So when I wanted to make that pod move you pull the dice you pull the snap to action and you send everybody forward from that captain which was great uh and my medic i think in that game alone saved seven or eight regular infantry infantrymen and the captain once so he more than earned his points <laughs> for a medic on that table which there's some solace in that i guess but no i still lost that game horribly it's funny how often I, and this is something I've just kind of like ob- observed over the course of uh, recent games, is that there are times where that one dice, you know, when you're pulling a new round and you absolutely need your dice to come up first, otherwise you're going to be boned. And that, I, I feel like that happens more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an interesting mechanic with the, with the pulls. You think, oh, you know, it should relatively even out to I go and you go by units, you know, depending how it goes, and I was running 16 order dice, so I figured there was a fairly good chance one of mine would come out of the bag first, but sometimes that's how it goes. Yeah, totally. I I just, I had a lot of instances where if my tank got to go first, it it would have, I would, you know, my tank would have survived and his tank would have died, or, you know, and for some reason during this tournament, and it's kind of just the way it goes sometimes, is, you know, I feel like their dice were drawn first, and you're like, yep, I guess my Panzer's gone for the game, so that's just kind of the way it worked. So you ran 16 order dice for a tournament, Jeff? Did you have any trouble with getting the number of turns done in the two-and-a-half-hour allotment, and how many average order dice was everyone else running for that? I would say the average ordered dice count I saw was between 10 and 12. So, I mean, I wasn't, by percentage, sure, I'm pretty exorbitant on that, but I don't think I was that high. Part of the trick is if when you run a captain and a, sec, and a, excuse me, and a lieutenant, you get a lot of snap to action. And if you keep those officers in a good spot, you know, I'd routinely pull six dice out of the bag off of two dice. And on top of that, uh, I'm a, I am a pretty quick player. I mean, I know what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. Whether you know I can get there or not, and the dice cooperate is another matter. But So I play pretty quickly when I play the game. So I had no trouble. We were always done well before time in all three of my games. So I had no trouble running 16 order dice. Uh, if you're one of those guys that's going to get down like you're making a 30-foot putt on a green and examine it from all angles and... Hem and haw, I don't recommend playing that many order dice, but if you're quick and decisive, yeah, no problem. And I can't remember, were they two-hour rounds or were they two-and-a-half-hour rounds? I feel like they they, they were... I never had a problem finishing within within the two within the time frame, but I can't remember what they were. I want to say they were two-and-a-half, and I think they may have fudged that ten minutes in either direction because a couple of the rounds kind of started at, at, at weird times, you know, or a couple were played a little early, but generally it was supposed to be two-and-a-half. Yeah, I kind of feel like it was pretty fluid based on how people were finishing and starting and stuff like that. You, so you, you mentioned the snap to action there, Jeff. I, I think that's probably one of the most commonly messed up new rules in version 2 that's been out there. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, in fact, there was a question in my game here. Um, my opponent wasn't familiar enough with the rule and felt that you know only your highest ranking officer could use that. And I was like, no, the rules are pretty explicit if you read them that say that all officers can do this. So I think it's great, you know. I mean, tactically, if you know when you want to do it and you keep 
units in range of your officers, it's so awesome to be able to... I mean, a captain, I'm re, I was pulling... I'd get his dice and three more dice, so that's three units. And in this case, it was three infantry squads. I could activate all in one go. So and if you want to really captain, coordinate an action... Ooh. The captain actually gets to do 12 inches instead of just 6 inches like the first and second lieutenants get. He sure does, which makes him even better. Uh, you know, So the guy is expensive, but I thought he was... Maybe not... The medic was the MVP of this tournament, no question about it. But the captain did yeoman's work there. I mean, I will strongly consider any time I run more than two infantry squads bringing a captain with me. Maybe not in the German army because they're going to get the free dice anyway off a of first lieutenant. They'll get three instead of two. But that three dice pull was absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. So when you call your, your snap to action, so you pull three dice, an additional three dice out of the bag, um, do you have to specify which units those dice will be allocated to um, and their orders before you execute an order, or do you get to do one at a time, or is there what's the order of operations there on the snap to action exactly? Yeah. So my understanding of the rule is, is you pull, you pick the number of order dice you want out of that bag. So in this case, I al- almost always pulled three if there are three units in range. And then Actually, you set the order dice first in there, Jeff. What's is that? that that lieutenant or major or whoever has to first succeed at an order test if they have pins on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't let me forget that, yeah. Yep. That's now, the first step. But Dale's looking for order operations, and that's step one in there. Is fair enough, It has yeah, to be a successful enough. order test for that lieutenant or captain or major. That's a very good point. And I, w- I will tell you, though, um, other than preparatory bombardment, if your officer's getting shot at, you're doing something wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, you make sure that there's any pins. He's got to pass an order test first. If he passes the order test, then you pull... Uh, his specified number of dice, second lieutenant one, first lieutenant two, captain three, major four. I set those dice next to the unit. So I pick the three units I'm going to snap to action, and I set the dice next to them. I, my understanding is I don't have to say which order they're going to do beforehand. That's you true. Just actually, have to mark the unit. The Band of Brothers templates actually have the little dog tag that has the snap to action to, so you actually can like reserve the order dice next to the units. You have to designate which units are snapping to action. And here's the other interesting part, is you can pre-measure from your officer to the units before you determine if he's going to use snap to action to pull order dice for those units. Absolutely, otherwise it wouldn't be legal. One of the only other times in this game that you can do pre-measurement. Yep. Yeah, it's... Go ahead, Dale. All right, so you you actually can uh, put your order down and execute an order and see how it resolves before determining necessarily what maybe your second or third unit will do. That's pretty That's pretty solid, actually. Okay. It's pretty good, yeah. You can say you've got uh, a unit of enemy infantry across the way. You know, you order the first unit to put some fire on them. If it's not effective, then you send the second unit to put some fire on them. Otherwise, if it is effective, the, the remaining two order dice could advance up to take up new cover and new positions. But I really like that order of operations. Now, of course, it's important to remember your officer has to execute his order before the snap-to-action units execute their order. I was just going to bring that up for you. So you could very easily bring your officer too far away from the unit to give his influence to remove pins off those unit on their order test when they activate. So there's a little danger there. Again, I will tell you, the best spot for an officer is close but behind your men, Uh, in which case, you know, he... Shouldn't be getting shot at, and generally the order I gave my captain was almost universally down. 
which down does not require an order test, so you automatically pass that regardless of pins, should you happen to have your officer get fired at for some reason. You got it, and it makes it harder for him to hit from everything except snipers, so... It's actually funny because we had I had a question about this during the scenario. I can't remember if this this came up in one of our other games. I don't know where or if it was just some manifestation in my brain. Was that can can they use Snap Two to move an armored vehicle? And I feel like I remember saying that they can't. But when we looked through the rule book, it didn't say they couldn't. It only specifies units. It doesn't specify infantry units. Yeah, that's what we came to the conclusion of too. Is like, like, yeah, you could totally do this with tanks if you wanted to. That that's totally a valid choice. As long as you got the tank within range of the officer, absolutely, yes. Yep. Now, conversely, you can't have the officer in an armored personnel carrier and snap anybody. Correct. He's got to get out to do that. He has to be on the table in order to make that snap to action. Otherwise, and also the unit he orders has to be on the table. So he can't order a unit in a transport, but he can snap to action the transport. But not if he's in the transport. But not if he is on the table, yes. If he is not on the table, meaning in a transport or in reserve or flanking or whatever, then he gets that special rule doesn't apply. He has to start the turn on the table, and the unit that he snaps to action has to start the turn on the table. I got totally hosed in the third game on that because the lieutenant was in, <laughs> was in a transport. Yeah, I for a while there I was thinking about, you know what would be awesome is, you know, the one thing I have as a British player is I don't have great anti-tank infantry units. We have the Piat, which has got a range of 20, uh, 12 inches. So I'm like, okay, so I put them in a jeep, and I get a snap to action, and I order the jeep and the Piat team, the jeep to move forward, and them to pile out. I'm like, no, that doesn't quite work. they got to start the turn. they got to start the turn on the table, or be on the table before that snap to action is given. It's new in 2nd edition, and it's not surprising that it's abused, misused, and misunderstood because they didn't have anything like it in 1st edition, but I think it's a great change in this edition, absolutely. Probably one of my favorite new rules. Uh, also, favorite new rule is every vehicle gets rolled in the vehicle damage table, soft skin included. That's also very cool. That makes the game just so much easier, too. Quite honestly, you have one chart for everything, which makes things easy. Jeff, did we talk about your game three? Or have we not gotten into the game three? We kind of got in a little rules <laughs> augment there. Sorry, no. I'll do that from time to time. No, it's okay. That's it's okay. okay. Tangents are good. No, well, we were just finishing out my game two there. Okay. Uh, my game three was, at this point, I've, I've lost two games because I never did catch that Italian officer. So I am down in the, uh, the very bottom table, uh, and I pulled a, a uh, forgive me for not remembering the guy's name, but it was a Russian opponent who was running a Russian horde army which was kind of awesome because I was running almost a French horde army, except my guys were regular and his were inexperienced. So we had an awful lot of infantry on that table. Um, and it was a fairly standard shoot 'em up game. It was captured table quadrants. Um, I, advanced, I advanced my captain and my regular, three regular infantry squads and medic up the left half of the board and sent my uh, Senegalese and my foreign legion unit up, up the right half of the board. Um, he had a T-34, which is the one thing that really scared me, but he spent most of the game machine-gunning my infantry, my veteran infantry with it, which, when you send them down every time, well, they don't go anywhere, but they don't take too many casualties either. Uh, and the highlight of that one is definitely my Samoa with the light anti-tank gun driving up to just under half range and putting a round clean through that T-34 and rolling a six on the penetration and blowing it up, which just made me feel warm and fuzzy inside, because... 
that's a real light tank taking out a real monster of a tank. So I really like that. And the other side note on the other half of the table, I might have been a little bit mean. I had a sniper team out there. Um, I tried to drop a smoke round first turn, which, of course, he put right in my sniper's face. Uh, and then consequently moved his commissar to one out of the smoke in one half and out of the smoke arc with his lieutenant in the other half, and I promptly shot both of them down because the Russian army with inexperienced troops, once they lose the commissar and the lieutenant, usually don't do too much the rest of the game. So, Yeah, and to explain, that, was, that, that scenario was the quadrant control. I can't remember what it was actually called, but it was essentially you guys start in kitty corner quadrants and you're trying to control all four quadrants essentially. Yeah, end of the game, I I had tabled him off, so it was, it was my my whole table. So, but I mean, we're down on the end, so you don't really brag too much about that. <laughs> Way to go in the friendship game. Yeah, I was right down there with you, Jeff. Uh, so my third game, actually, it's funny because my my second game ended early, and uh, one of the organizers came over and was like, hey, somebody's got to leave early. Would you mind starting your game? Like as soon as you're this game, you know, as soon as you're wrapped up with all your paperwork for this game. And I'm like, absolutely, sure, let's do it. And so uh, I set up, I want to say his name was Tim, but I'm, I'm blanking here. I think it was Tim. Um, in his American army, uh, just a standard U.S. troops. Uh, and we started and we, and we tried to crack through that game as fast as we could so he could get out of there. He had a prior obligation he had to go to so we tried to make it as quick as possible um so essentially the game ended in him him uh uh you know surrendering at the end of the game there essentially but you know i i imagine that it may have ended in a draw long term like if we'd actually played it all the way out it probably would have ended in a draw were there any highlights or low lights or was the table and the mat you played on the best thing about the game or <laughs> funny you say that actually uh the table itself was actually beautiful it was uh it, it, it's funny it was uh i think it was saris saris uh, precision is that the name i can't i i think that's how you pronounce it um they had some uh some of the city stuff on there but it was actually a urban mats uh cobblestone city mat and it was actually very perfect for the setting that uh, the kind of a city setting a village setting for bolt action it was yeah, very really, nice i thought that that was one that and the city board i thought were were both were outstanding the, that mat in particular and the way that um that they put the terrain on there was i mean for me i'm the way i approach the game is very cinematic and visual and i really loved how that whole thing looked so I I definitely see like the like those those mouse pad mats being like the wave of the future as far as wargaming in general. Like we've seen in some other game systems before, but I mean I think it's just the easy way to make really pretty tables with some cool terrain, but you also have a really nice, you know, essentially, you know, the base layer of your thing is actually just as nice as all of your terrain that you're putting on it. Plus the dice roll really nice on those mats. They really do, and yeah, you don't have that problem of of I, and and I appreciate it too because it's winter time here in Minnesota, and my hands get really dry, and I feel like those gravel tables or those even whatever you know whatever texture base they put on them just rip up my hands. Like I start, I'm like I'm gushing blood by the end of a tournament just from the the, the gravel on the table. Well, that's that seems to be a unique issue for you because I don't know that I've ever had had that particular problem. And it, no, no. 
I'm going to side in here with Rick on that. I have the same. <laughs> I have the same problem. My knuckles look like I've been in a boxing contest with a shark after one of those okay. tournaments. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. <laughs> Except the terrain tables. So. It was an awesome tournament. We, I think Jeff and I learned quite a bit about, I mean, our meta, the amount of terrain on the table compared to what we were playing locally, um, you know, essentially getting to know a lot, of the, a lot of these people that apparently, have, I mean, a lot of these guys have been playing for considerably more time than we have. Um, all for free, which was awesome that Jacob, uh, Stephen, and Anthony all put together this, this pretty amazing tournament for, you know, for absolutely zero cost to us, which I think was totally awesome. They had some awesome prize support. Uh, Jeff got some cool swag. Jeff? Oh, yeah, some... yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a, I got first door prize, which is awesome, is uh, Stuka Zafus, uh, just a Hannah mag with some big-ass rockets on the side of it. So things, it's a Rubicon kit. I absolutely love Rubicon kits, so I, I was thinking about buying that particular one at some point. So I was trying to contain my excitement when I got up there and quick snapped it up. Yeah, I mean, they if they did anything well, is that it, for one, it was free. Now, I did talk to him about it, and he's like, yeah, next time it's probably not going to be free, which I totally could understand them, you know, charging something to get in. Um, and I'm surprised they didn't do it even this first time just to try and, you know, break a little closer to even. But, you know, so they had a bunch of good prize support from Warlord, Rubicon, um, I, you know, and I was bottom of the table, and I, because you, you, did you win door prize on the Hannah Mag Award? What did you, what did you get first door prize from? Was there just a random raffle you won, the, you got quick drawed? Yeah, they just had a, so they, everybody that uh, placed or got a trophy got a prize. Uh, and then they had a lot of stuff remaining after that. And they just drew names out of a hat going down the line for the remaining stuff on the table. Cool. And then when they ran out, they still had, I think, figurines for everybody. Like yeah, that. they had a limited edition Warlord figurines. They had uh, the, I can't remember the name of the Soviet, the female Soviet sniper that had had the most confirmed kills, but they had the Warlord model for that. And they had, you know, he probably had, you know, a dozen of those that he was handing out to everyone that hadn't gotten something else, which I thought was pretty sweet. So... That kind of wraps up the tourney. None of us won anything, but we still got a lot of cool stuff out of it. Um, we're going to take a short break and be right back. We're off to see Herr Hitler, the mythical wizard of Oz. We hear he is a whiz of a whiz, a son of a... By gosh. I've got sixpence, jolly, jolly sixpence. I've got sixpence to last me all my life. I've got tuppence to spend and tuppence to lend and tuppence to send home to my wife, poor wife, no cares have I to grieve me, no pretty little girl to deceive me, happy as a lark, believe me, as we go rolling, rolling home. Line up for our pay when we go rolling, rolling home. Bless them all, bless them all, the long and the short and the tall. Bless all the sergeants, the sourpuss ones. Bless all the corporals and their dopey sons, cause we're saying goodbye to them all. As back to the barracks they crawl. No ice cream and cookies for flat-footed rookies. So cheer up, my lads, bless them all. 
There'll be no promotion this side of the ocean. So cheer up, my lads, bless them all. All right, so our background, um, well, most of our background, I guess, um, at least in our own heads, was as competitive gamers in previous games with tournaments being kind of what we spend a lot of time working towards. And so we're kind of used to how tournaments are in that sense where it was like, you know, Swiss system, you know, you play through, you know, a bunch of games, two-day tournaments, all this kind of stuff. Sometimes the scenarios would be released ahead of time, different varieties, yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so with Bolt Action, I was curious, um, based off, you know, this was the first tourney that you guys went to, and I was, I kind of watched some of the, um, some of it happen there, um, there at the event center. And um, what I'd read previously in regards to bolt action tournaments or events, they were there was this. Um, it felt like you know some of these tournaments worked hard to match up axes versus allies players. Some scenarios sounded like they were linked to specific boards. So in the same round, you might not have the same people playing the same scenarios, those kinds of things. And so my concern was coming from something that seems so different to that. You know, that it didn't sound like this was that kind of a tournament or based off of what you guys have seen or heard, how how do bolt action tournaments work in that regard exactly? I know that we've got an Adepticon team tournament coming up, uh, Adepticon, which is in March, that they're making an effort to have access versus allies and um, that sort of thing set up. I don't... I think what the gist is... From what I saw of other tournaments on the forums and whatnot, is that basically they just—it's you just play against your opponent. If it happens to be the same army, they consider it—it's a skirmish practice sort of scenario that you're going through, and not an actual war event. But I don't know if there's actually tournaments that are trying to do thematic or actual storytelling tournaments either. I, I haven't heard of any of those type of tournaments myself. Okay, so then the impression is at least here. In our area or region, it's more along the lines of, I, I suppose, what we're used to, where it's, you know, uh, best players continue playing. Not, that's not that's not fair. Um, the currently most successful players in the tournament are will be playing each other, and then as you lose games, you move quote unquote down the tables, and um, it's not there's not necessarily a push for axes versus allies, and this idea where based on your board that dictates um, the scenario that's played at that table. Uh, it's okay. I just, I remember hearing about it or reading about it, and I found that to be um, very different from what I was used to. And initially, because it is different and I've never seen it or played in something like that, I couldn't wrap my head around um, how that works. Um, obviously it does, because there are places that do it, but I just didn't know what you guys had heard or, or had seen. So, okay. I think and it's I more of the the narrative sort of tournament that I know um, the game Infinity kind of makes a push for and has done successfully very well, but I don't know that a lot of tournament-wise for Bolt Action has actually been in there. I mean, it's certainly very cool. Again, it is a historical game, so I think that might you know lend itself a little bit. But I think we're seeing that as far as us playing and the campaign that Jeff is actually writing that we're exploring the war through. Um, 
I don't see that really so much in a tournament from what I've heard. It's basically what we're used to, which is the players that win pair off against each other, the players that lose pair down, and it doesn't matter which army you're actually playing unless the tournament organizer is doing a specific narrative tournament. I do think there might have been a concerted effort to, like, you know, within the Swiss pairings, because it was definitely very much Swiss. You know, winners playing winners, losers playing losers at this tournament, that they... I think they made an attempt to pair everyone up with an Axis. Like, I was playing Axis. They found me ally players as much as they could. Now, I mean, that's not to say that things weren't, like, they didn't change based on what was going on with other teams or with other things. Like, my second game, I was supposed to play a German player, but then they, they had made a mix-up and moved me to an American player. So I think they are, were trying to do that, Dale, but I don't think it was, like, they. it was definitely not going to break the Swiss. Let's put it that way. They they kept the winners with the winners and the losers with the losers. It, it's just kind of the way it worked out. Okay, right. And I mean, I mean, it wasn't a huge field, you know. And I don't, you know, I don't, you know, it was like the World Championships with bolt action or anything. I guess it's just, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, a scenario linked to a board and not around. It sounds interesting to me simply because, I mean, we've been far enough along and, and played enough tournaments that we've seen we've seen some amazing boards that, that just either they don't work because of the scenario of that particular round, um, and as beautiful as they might be, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I can kind of see the benefit of, you know, and having building a board for a specific scenario um, and then actually being able to utilize that. So I, I guess... I know that we're kind of talking about maybe what we might do for a tournament and things like that. I think it might be worth maybe doing some research to work out if that can work and how we might be able to make it work. You know, because of all the boards we're talking about building, you know, some of them might work really well for meeting engagement and not at all for, you know, you know, manhunt on Lieutenant Dan or something like that. So I just, you know, again, I know it's just our first tournament. We're kind of getting into this fresh and stuff like that. I was just kind of, you know, just wanted to get everybody's thoughts on what we'd like to do there. That's fine. Uh, what I was saying is it's just how specific a table you build uh, for a scenario. Uh, you know, I mean, like, a trench system table should work for just about any game. Even that city board would work for just about any game, honestly. The problem with that city board more has to do with how high explosive works uh, as opposed to too many buildings on the table. So unless you're built, maybe that Alamo building, Rick, that you played on, that one is a little questionable to me for certain scenarios just because it was so open. Um, but in general, I think you can get away building just about any kind of table. Okay. All right, Pat, what were you saying? Um, I said I was agreeing with what you're saying, that building a, a board to a particular scenario rather than having a scenario based on which round of the tournament you're in, I think is a different idea that I haven't seen in tournament play before. And I think that'd be a really good way to go about it is that you're on this board and here's the scenario you're playing in this board instead of it's round two, everyone go and kill the Lieutenant. So yeah, I, I think that's a great way to go about it. And I haven't seen that. And that might be something that could be a little unique if we actually put something together. Okay. Not not to play the devil's advocate in that, but I I would be worried about how fair that is to list building as far as like like now instead of building to three scenarios or maybe five scenarios, you're building to maybe twenty scenarios depending on the tables. I mean I don't know how far far you take that, but maybe it's like you have one, a one in five shot of playing any one of these scenarios based on the table you're on, but. Again, also like that would that would like if you go to a second table, could you play the same scenario twice? 
I, I, it sounds really intriguing, but I just don't know how it would work. Right. It, 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 it's, it just, see, it's just, it's just different than what we're used to. And, um, I mean, I think there's some tournament packs that it is that way. And I think I've heard that it, it has worked in certain scenarios. So it might just be something that, I mean, we're not, we're not complete morons. It might, we might be able to come up with a way to get it to work. Uh, it might take a little bit more work on the front side of it where we give some thought to, you know, players, what, what tables they end up on, making sure they're not on the same tables or they play on a table with the same scenario, stuff like that. It's just kind of one of those things. And then I had just one last question again. Um, not again, but a last question. Now that we've – I've only played just a few times myself personally, but you guys have been playing a bit longer than I have. With the tournament and having seen the boards at the tournament and then how we play at the store when we get together on Thursday nights, um, how much space, open space, do you think – suits bolt action so for example as as an actual real tangible example if you have an infantry unit in cover um how much of the board should be open so that if that infantry unit runs leaves their cover how many spots on the board should they not be able to reach the next um set of cover um or intervening terrain if they're advancing up the board um should there be an open chasm periodically throughout the entire board should you have only maybe a couple of spots here and there where that's happening or should you always be able to move from cover to cover what do you guys think what i have seen uh as far as i've I've watched a lot of uh battle reports on beast of war and stuff like that and their boards first of all gorgeous uh what they basically do is the terrain and cover is placed 12 inches apart so with a run order, you can basically move cover to cover, but with an advance, you're you know running the the risk of not being able to get to cover. That's what I've seen on those. Not saying that they're you know the forefront of what it should be, but it, I think that's a good a good go by for that kind of. Okay, um, Jeff and Rick, what do you what do you guys think about that? Also from from a play from a, a playability standpoint, I guess that's more along the lines of what I'm looking for too in regards to thinking about how to, how these boards should go together and I want them to play really well. Um, I would tell you that uh, 12 inches, what Pat was saying is pretty accurate. You want to be able to run to the next piece of cover, I think. Um, militarily and tactically. All right, Rick. I, so, so my thoughts on that are that, it, yes, making people, allowing people to make a run order and then being able to get into cover is, a, is, a, is really nice to have. I don't know that it should be like universal across the board. I think you need to maybe give people options on the table, but I don't think you should have that everywhere on the table, right? Like you maybe have a couple strategic points like that, but I don't think you should have that across the entire, your entire table so that someone can advance their entire wave across the table without having to do something a little differently. Okay. I think we might have to try a couple of different setups, you know, just so we can get a feel for what delivers the best gameplay. Yeah, totally. Okay. The other right, thing about guys. that, if uh, it'd be a little better with open spaces, Dale, if smoke were slightly more reliable. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> since smoke almost universally will scatter 12 inches at the opposing player's discretion, um, I can't recommend you trying to cross open ground. Okay. Yeah, totally. And we kind of had talked about one of the rules that we saw over the course of the of of the week, well, the day, a Saturday, um, 
which was Snap 2. Jeff, what else did you see? Did you see anything else that you were like, this is totally being played wrong or you know, this is a questionable rule that we keep that kept coming up over the course of the weekend? Playing wrong, no. Um, not, not the way we were playing it, but questionable rule that I think might need to be house ruled in the further meta is absolutely high explosive against buildings. Um, buildings, frankly, if you play them as written, are death traps now. Because when you're shooting high explosive at a building, you have to hit the building, not the units inside. So basically the only penalty you're ever going to take is long range. And then you're doing a D2 or D3 or up to D6 or 2D6 wounds to guys in buildings. So it's like the old rules for high explosive. So say you stick a sniper team in a bell tower like a certain French player did, uh, and a guy rolls around the corner with... uh, you know, a light auto cannon, and he puts two shots in. Well, he's only got to roll threes to hit me. So, to answer Dale's question about the whole prep- preparatory bombardment thing, is that I absolutely think it should be one, one or all, or one or none, right? Like it should be everyone gets it or nobody gets it. Um, especially when you're playing against a Brit player who already gets that really significant advantage of being hey, able to roll hey, two hey, dice. Hey, 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 hey. Well, no, it, I would have been fine with us both getting our, our preparatory bombardments, but the fact that he got them and then got to roll two dice and I didn't get anything out of it was really bad. Like it just it it didn't make me salty, but it I it put me on. I mean, I won't say it won him the game because he still outplayed me, but I think it dramatically changed the outcome of the game at the very outset of the game. And it wasn't even just my attitude; it was. I had I had significantly more pins at the beginning of the game, and I wasn't going to be able to clear them fast enough. So that being said, I mean it wasn't a big deal. I think if you know you could house rule some of these things, even high explosives, or or you know and or preparatory bombardments, and it wouldn't it wouldn't be a big deal. I don't think anyone would be salty about us saying you know if we roll one dice for the whole table, that's how we're playing things, and I don't think anyone would be like would quit the tournament based on that. I don't well, see that well, happening. Well, my other big question for you at the end of this whole thing I want to ask you is, okay, so there's rumors that there is actually a, an FAQ or errata coming out. What is the one thing that you would actually change about BA2 to make it more realistic from what from your viewpoint? Oh, I don't I don't know if I have an answer to that. It might be it might be how if I had to if I had to place something on it, like I maybe I would think that it would be how I don't know that necessarily tanks shooting at buildings is is the bad part. It's maybe how tanks are able to somehow pinpoint where all those shots are coming from right away, right? Or, oh, I heard a dude's footsteps over there. I'm going to blast that building without actually of taking any fire from that from those units. I think that might be the biggest thing I have a problem with. And I can heal, hear Dale's squeaky chair. I say it, Dale just showed up, so... <laughs> Sorry. Ah, no, I can hear him. Excellent. The gang's all here. Yeah, we got this going. Sorry, guys. We had a little technical difficulties in the middle of all this. We're still working through our new software to help us uh, make this all happen. You know, it makes sense. We're working through a new game. I just worked through new software, too, right? Sure, new ideas. This is all our first, our first, all of our first podcasts as well. Take two. Yeah, we've had one practice run at this, but that doesn't really count. I'm the one not thing we took away from that is that Rick has to drink beer before getting involved in a podcast. Or not try and be so structured. I think that actually helps me a lot is to not be quite as 
rigid and and have to have some idea of what we're going to talk about right away or you know have a not be german apparently well i mean there's something to say uh, about not being prepared right <laughs> i think it actually makes things easier it's the word we have we have more to talk about too i know we had rule the rule book to talk about in the first episode which we didn't actually get to talk about this episode but that's because everyone already has their rule books, and we, when we first talked about this, it had everyone didn't have them yet. So, um, but now that we, ha- everyone's on the same foot as far as that goes. We had the tournament to talk about instead, which is kind of cool. So we've we've covered the tournament, and we've gone through most of that. Uh, the big thing that your takeaway from the tournament, as far as I understand it, is that the terrain that was involved in the tournament was way more than what we've done locally. Is that is that your big takeaway from the tournament? I would say yes. I feel like that is one of the biggest takeaways. Um, you know, I would say preparing that and on top of that, playing at such a large point level. Um, that was my first thousand point. My first thousand point games were over the course of this. I had gotten one practice game in before at a thousand points, but I feel like things are a little different when you get that high in the point value just based on how, you know, 10 order dice isn't that significant, but it does change things when you have to deal with an opponent that has also has a thousand points. Jeff, what's your slight on that? Um, you know, for me, it's, it's not that much different. I don't mind between 500 and 1500 doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference to me. You can't focus down on a particular unit at 1500 near the same way though. I mean, you got to be able to deal with lots of things coming at you as opposed to being able to focus on the one big bad thing the enemy might have. So, um, as far as things that would prep me for a tournament better, yeah, just a few more games, seeing a few more armies, and maybe not going for the fluff award next time if I want to be competitive would probably be my changes. <laughs> that... who, did, who did win the fluff award, by the way? The fellow that wrote up the whole army history of, I think, his German SS unit from, like, 1941 to 1945. I'm pretty sure he had individual guys' names and maybe their girlfriends' names and letters home from the front. Okay, that's a little much for for an actual war gaming. <laughs> hey, I like a good story. That sounds pretty exciting. It, he had it, a beautiful story and a like, great write up. If you like history, that was super great. I mean, was it like, you was know, it like a three page novel or something. <laughs> when you're when you're sniping that guy off the board, you know what who's what the name of the girl is back home. That's going to be really sad about it. <laughs> Fräulein is going to be totally devastated. Pretty much. I I had a tough time with that because I really wanted the armies to be, not only be like thematic and historical, but I wanted to see like the super pretty armies to go with it. Like I I and maybe this is just coming from us playing fantasy and other game systems. Like um, you know, there's a best painted award, and I kind of was like, I guess maybe self manifested it to be that, where I was like, oh, this is going to be the best painted award, and I definitely didn't feel like that may have been the case it was just the best story about a, your your unit that you had on the table i didn't pay that much attention to it to be honest though you had mentioned uh, about a day or two before that you did a display board for your particular army did anyone else do that too or is that just a kind of a hangover thing from we did 40k or fantasy, rather. Yeah, I never played 40K. Um, no, there were actually a few other display boards. There were not as many as there normally are, and I feel like that might be a hangover still, um, considering the people that I did know that brought them um, were fantasy fantasy refugees, essentially. Um, that being said, would I have not had my display board? No, I would have totally brought my display board. It's not, 
it's easy to carry. It carried my whole army. Um, I had all my supplies that I needed in there. It was it was super handy to have. In fact, I saw that Jeff picked up the same little thing that I picked up. Yeah, um, right. And it, it, it really does just help you move your stuff around from table to table. Uh, and for those that haven't seen what I have, and I'll try and figure out how to post a picture of it, um, essentially it's a silverware holder. So it's your utensil holder that you put in your drawer. And... When you're walking around with it, you can use those little cubbies to put all your units in and all your dice and your templates and all the other jazz that you need. But then what I did was I flip it over, and on the backside I put the display board and spray paint it all black and get it all pretty. And it's a nice little display board. It may not fit more than about a 1,000 points, but it's super slick from that standpoint that you don't need to, like, have two things you have to have a carrying case and a display board it just works as a little display board super handy yeah it looked fantastic it looked um one of the one of the games i play competitively is x-wing and one of the best things you can possibly have at a tournament there is a carrying case about that size you put all your crap in so you're not fumbling with a carrying anything larger than that or a carrying case or trying to stuff it all in your pockets and wander table to table so that was a great idea rick so yeah i copied you immediately (laughs) Uh, to be fair, I copied it from someone else. So, Tor, you're never going to listen to this, but thank you. That was uh, the br- most brilliant idea I've seen in a long time. There is something to be said about having not having to carry your entire tote with your entire army and just having the forks you're using that day available to you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But Splayboard, I can go either way on that. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think you necessarily needed it. Um Especially since, and this is kind of like I won't, I won't say this is beef I have with the tournament, um, and maybe it is a little bit. And this is maybe still a hangover from from the fantasy world. Is they didn't really have a best sports award, and they didn't have a best painted award. I'm not saying my army would have won best painted. I saw several paint, armies that were painted better than mine. Um, they had the Hannah swag, and and keep in mind this is their first tournament and they did an awesome job right out of the gate so i feel like there's that to be said they they did awesome and i think there's room to improve and this is one of the few areas i feel like we all had sports scores and you know rewarding that person for being a good sport whether or not they won or lost is i think a very valuable thing but i also think awarding the people that have the beautifully painted armies is a really big deal because quite honestly you know it it helps elevate the game when everybody has really awesome painted armies. And like Dale said earlier, if, if you're into the thematic thing or like the, you know, the theatrics of it, if, if it's missing, you're going to, if, if your opponent has the, the, the crappy three color minimum, you're not going to get as much out of it as some other people might get out of it. So I think rewarding people for that is a big deal. And I feel like that was something that might've been missing from this tournament. I agree with that point, but at the same time, I have, you know, about a half dozen display boards that I'm just trying to find room to not be in the way from previous tournaments and previous armies. And they always seem to be an extra tack on the side to try and get something ready for a tournament. And I, I would not disagree with that statement, Pat, but I also don't think, if you don't want to do it, I don't think that's a big deal. I just think not giving someone the award for going that extra mile. I mean, it's not even that the display board is what makes it or breaks it. I just think that it helps push people towards painting, more or less, not necessarily towards display boards. It brings the other side of the, the hobby into it instead of just right. being, a, hey, let's play the game to, you know, let's make it look good, you know, 
there there are those people that'll be out there that are pretty much hey that's not you know you have this wrong piece in the wrong spot or that's the wrong color that's not how historically was which we didn't have in fantasy but in this day and age or, or as far as bolt action is concerned is that you know we have the historical element to deal with as well and another display board another place to put it i don't know who needs it apparently this guy does here and i think honestly I might be able to use the same display board for almost everything that I'm doing as far as bolt action goes because, you know, unlike other games we have, there's essentially one or two realms, right? Realms as being like regions of war. There aren't that many places that you could do things differently. Like it's either grass or it's, you know, jungly. I don't know that there's a lot of other options unless you wanted to go. You could go different. You could do like concrete or, or other ruins, but you don't have to. I'm in the camp um, in support of display boards, but it's just uh, my background, and I love what, what's the story of the army, and I always felt I was best at being able to tell the story of the army through the basing and through the display board. I was one of those, kind of, that was where my hobby came out a little bit, and so I'm, I like that, although I'm with Pat in that it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be mandatory or, or necessarily anything like that. I just enjoyed, you know, because one of the things I liked best coming from where we came from was the player's choice side of it. And, you know, you know what, and you knew the people who, who would compete in that. And you were always excited to see what their new army was going to be that particular time. And so, you know, and seeing that is what inspired me and got me excited about my next project or, you know, those kinds of things. So I've always, I guess as, as I've gotten older, um, I've always, or rather I've, I've shifted more to the hobby aspect of it. And I haven't, I haven't yet been able to fully embrace the historical nature. This is my first historical game. And I love World War II and I love the history and I love learning about everything and, and all of, all of that. But, um, I haven't been able to dig into like the real specifics. I mean, I've heard the, I've heard the term rivet counter used. Um, I don't know if it's derogatory. I think it might be kind of derogatory, but at the same time, there's something in my mind that's kind of cool about knowing, well, this is this specific kind of weapon, or this is, that's is, this is this specific, you know, millimeter on this medium anti-tank gun. And it was deployed here, here, and here during this amount of time. I, I think that's all kind of cool. Um, as long as it doesn't necessarily, or as long as it doesn't get in the way of just, getting together and having fun with, with our toys. So that's kind of where I land on the whole thing. I totally think it's a valid strategy to paint your stuff totally and accurately. So when you're facing one of those, one of the river rivet counters that uh, you, you ruin their day. It's kind of like bringing your girlfriend to the table. A whole psychological work. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Just mess with their brain. Like they can't, they can't compete because your, your, your panzer is just totally inaccurate. So you're not going for the sportsmanship award then I take it. <laughs> uh, so I, you're going with the hot pink T-34 from the Soviet army. Is that what you're going for? That's right. Yeah. The, the special unit that nobody else knew about. I'm going to make up special stories and tell them and they're going to just be like, what? That's not true. It'll be I, fantasy I, bolt action. <laughs> Maybe that's where we end up going with Conflict 47. Just crazy stuff. I got my elven wizard behind my armored unit, and I'm good to go. It seems like it might be pretty close when you start looking at the the stuff that they're coming out with now. The the new bear were bears were pretty sweet looking, but I thought the Russian bears looked kind of cool. I mean, it's pretty cliche, but I thought, I was like, oh, cool, there's bears. 
but yeah. obviously entertained. Well, and the, and the Germans already have zombies and all sorts of other cool shit there, but or all stuff, excuse me. Been keeping a PG thirteen until just now. Different game, different game, different game. Yeah, no, we're not we're not going there yet. We're gonna we're gonna keep with uh with the current war. Speaking of rivet counters, and, and I'm not gonna say Jeff is a rivet counter by any stretch of the imagination, but he does know the most about the history of all of our other of World War Two, I would say. He seems to have the best knack for all of this stuff. Um, he's been running a scenario or a campaign with us since the beginning of or uh, for three or four months now. I don't know how long we've been doing, but we've he's been running us through the beginning of the war until I don't even know where we are now. Jeff, why don't you fill us in on where where exactly we are? Because I don't even remember where we are anymore. <laughs> well, for your rivet counters out there, we're at the start of <clears throat> the start of Case Yellow, uh, Fall Gelb. Uh, which is the German invasion of the Low Countries uh, as a preparatory action to their invasion of France. Uh, this will be Manstein's sickle-cut maneuver. So the last scenario uh, we did with the guys was uh, the take, uh, taking of the fort of uh, Ebenen Mall in Belgium, which for you history buffs out there, you'll remember is key to the Belgian defense uh, and a terribly large fort, actually, that was thought to be uh, unassailable. Uh, which it may have been from the ground. Unfortunately, the Germans intelligently figured out if you can't come at it from the side, just land gliders on the roof, which is precisely what they did. So we set up our campaign game and had quite a bit of fun uh, pushing, what, three 4x4 tables together, setting up a series of bunkers the Allies had to defend, and then having our access players land all of their glider troops via paper airplane across the table, which uh, we learned some guys are much better at throwing paper airplanes than others. So we had quite the fun scenario there. Uh, we ran out of time before the, the game actually finished, although I think the Axis were probably going to pull it out in the end. I think they we also had... learned that a lot of people are better at making paper airplanes than some of the others, too. Well, some of us sabotage the paper airplanes, you know, because you, you do nice. that kind of stuff. So, you know, bend a flap down here or there to watch them spiral out of control. You know, fun stuff like that. But, yeah, so that's the campaign we've been running started uh, just prior to September 1 to 39 with the invasion of Poland, and we've moved through the phony war of the winter. We did a short detour into the Norwegian campaign. Uh, we are moving on to the Battle of France, and the actually next part of this scenario is going to be a three-parter with the Battle of Dunkirk. So uh, that should be pretty exciting to report on in the future. Yeah. It's been super fun, even getting hand, our asses handed to us a couple times. Um or getting a little salty with uh, with the bunker rules or whatever, but it's been really fun, Jeff, and we'll we'll continue. I hope. Oh, it'll continue. Don't worry about that. We got a whole lot of war left. Yeah, I'm my first my first game of bolt action was the um, was landing the paper airplanes on Ebon Amal. And um, <laughs> just kind of going through that, learning the game, uh, finally having enough troops painted to to let myself play. And so for for me, it is actually it's just different. I don't remember that we've ever gotten this far as a club together in a campaign consistently um, over this amount of time. And so usually we stop because we're preparing for a tournament or you know, we have gamer ADD and we are off doing something else. So I am hoping because this has been fun, um, that we keep kind of moving forward with this kind of the campaign side of it, because it's not something that I'm used to. And so it's fun to, and it lets me get into the history and the stories that have already happened that we get to kind of see unfold a little bit. 
Well, and that's the fun of it for me running this campaign and why I absolutely will keep putting up scenarios until you guys get sick of it because secretly I'm teaching you history of World War II that, frankly, we gloss over pretty heavily in an American history classroom. So you're going to learn a lot more about the war and a lot about the uh, smaller participants and smaller battles of this war before we're, before we're done. What I really like about it is the fact that we're actually, again, with the, you know, our club traditionally is is preparing for the next tournament, the next tournament, the next tournament. But one one thing that's nice about this game is just playing the game itself does actually prepare you for the next tournament. Regardless of what force you put out week to week, you're learning the tactics and, and how those units respond, whether it's early war, because it's a really nice thing that's just a point-by system that every time you put a force on the table, you could have put the modern force or the early war force on there, and you have about the same odds of actually winning the game. So I think, actually, in, as Jeff alluded to, that learning about the history about World War II is even is actually even cooler. I mean, we actually have our debates long about just what was going on at the war at the time and who remembered what and who learned what this week. So it's it's actually pretty cool just to be there if you don't get a chance to play a game just for an hour or two just to get in that part of the debate too. Yeah, I can say all I've learned about it is who was supposed to win the battle and that I, whenever the Germans are supposed to win, I never do. Well, that, that would I don't be think a baby that's on the hangover. <laughs> I, 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 we talked a little bit about this at the tournament. I, I, I'm thinking that you just need to try to put together a list that actually takes advantage and, and maximizes your special rules. And we'll see if that doesn't have a better showing for you. And quite honestly, I'll, yeah, that'll be a topic in a future discussion because I am kind of avoiding a couple of the rules that I have so far. And it's not that I'm avoiding them. It's that as far as a, I'm a German player, I have a German army, unfortunately a lot of our special abilities require us to buy into them and I'm just not ready to buy into them yet. Whereas a lot of the other special rules kind of are inherent or bought or free. Um, we don't get any of those kind of things. So we have to buy a 235 point tank if we want to take advantage of Tiger well, Fear. which you'll hardly be without an NCO basically. True. And I take advantage of that rule quite a bit. And that rule is amazing. But the Tiger Fear is the one that I'm primarily stayed away from, have stayed away from at this point. And Though enough people the, complain <laughs> about well, it, so you also have the the extra order dice that uh, the rest of us don't get, which we we touched on briefly. True, true, true. No, and and yeah, the the only rule that I haven't really taken advantage of is the tiger fear. Is what I should be saying, um, which I I need to try out because I I've heard nothing but people complain about it, which means it's super good, and I totally see that it could be super good. It's which, just a hefty point sink. It's super it, good. It does remind me that there is one other tournament really you guys kind of want to touch on, which was the, the high explosive or the high explosive shots versus buildings. Did, did you guys cover all that fully you wanted to, or was it just must, kind of a misinterpretation or just an overpowered ability at this point? I think we touched on it a lot, but uh, it's, it's something I think that needs to be looked at and maybe house ruled. Um, but my general consensus on it is that buildings, frankly, are death traps to infantry. Uh, which is not historically accurate uh, and is something we should definitely look at finding some way around because otherwise no one's going to ever want to enter a building on a, in a gaming table. Well, just simply interpreting the fact that um, you're not targeting the building, you're targeting the unit, so therefore automatically hard cover, I think, would cover most of it, right? Yeah, that would certainly help, yeah. But then, of course, the, the flip side of the coin is is that 
uh, as I learned repeatedly at this tournament, digging veteran infantry out of hard cover, especially a building, is just about damn near impossible with shooting. So, some kind of mixture with small of arms would shooting, be nice. Even with machine guns. With heavy weapons, it's it's still a chore, but, yeah. The hard cover is still a chore, but so it goes. Dale? Well, and uh, full disclosure, I haven't read the building rules yet. Um, it sounds like we're saying two, or you're saying two different things. Um, buildings are death traps for infantry, but infantry, veteran infantry, are super survivable in buildings. If they get the plus two hard cover, they go down. That's another plus two. So, is it you know, is there a sweet spot somewhere in the middle, or did I just not hear that correctly exactly? No, no, there's a, you, there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. Um, you don't want buildings to be uh, impossible to get guys out of. It's just, it's a little too easy right now. So some kind of, even if it's just uh, like the old gun shield rule where you just have to roll a six to wound guys in a building and it's still easy to hit them with hard, high explosive would probably cover it. So, because um, um, you can you can shoot at the, the buildings now, right? Not necessarily at the units in the buildings? Yeah, you're just shooting at the side of the building. So okay. you're almost right, always going to hit it uh, on a three, maybe a four. So it's it's really easy to hit a building right now. And then you're just trying to collapse it on the troops inside. Well, they're going to take uh, a D6 or a D3 or a 2D6 if it's a heavier weapon, number of hits the unit inside the building if you hit the building. So it's oh, like the old yeah, high explosive brutal. rules. Yeah, it's it's hyper brutal on smaller units. So like my sniper team uh, took two D three hits from high explosive, even though they were dug into a stone church, and it just ripped them in half. So okay. yeah, version one was it was almost impossible to get units out of building, and I feel like they have gone the opposite direction where. Now it's super easy to just blow people out of buildings, which is, I think, that the, there's got to be some happy medium in there because I feel like units and buildings used to be just notoriously hard to kill. To be technical, it's only heavy weapons and flamethrowers that don't suffer the penalty to hit units and buildings. Correct. Yep. It's It, it really is about you know, the, the HE explosives that is what this whole debate is about, right? Is that, you know, a tank blowing up a, an entire building is the really tricky part. And there were a lot of, uh, there were, there was actually an email chain going around after the tournament with a bunch of the people in it that was basically trying to figure out how you could make it better. And there were a lot of people going back and forth between whether or not it's to hit or to wound it. It, it was kind of like one way or the other. You just got to do something to make it a little less impactful. So, so let me ask that. Let me start the uh, one question segment of our of our uh, podcast here. And Rick, what is the one thing you would change in the um, next uh, revision of Bolt Action? <laughs> We're already starting this. It just came out. Uh, if I had to choose one, it would still be preparatory bombardment over units and buildings. Okay. Uh, what about you, Dale? Um, you know what? I don't know that I've actually played enough to know that, you know, I don't know the rules well enough to, to warrant an opinion on what should be, what should be changed. So I've, I'm going to have to hold out for now. Jeff, I know you have one. You know, actually, uh, if, if we just sort out this high explosive and buildings things, I actually am pretty comfortable with the rule set as is. It's just that one I kind of want to see addressed and clarified in how we go about hitting guys in buildings. 
Well, personally, I'd like to see the smoke rules addressed. Oh they, yeah, yeah. Smoke's all smoke's garbage in this edition. Yeah, that's you're right. That's it's garbage. They either need to shorten it to the opponent moves it six inches, or, a random or it direction. just randomly scatters. Just, just give it a random scatter. Just give it a random scatter. That mechanic's already in the game. Just give it a random scatter. Right. They give it to the artillery barrage. So yeah, just give it a random scatter for Christ's sake. That's just that makes it so much more viable. I mean, yeah. hitting a six isn't viable to begin with, but still. Yeah, I see almost. I mean, I I desperately have been trying to find a use or a time it would be a good idea to shoot a smoke round in this game uh, with the rules as written, and it just doesn't ever actually present itself. Which is not historically accurate, and I've never actually actually seen a reason to put a mortar in my list lately, honestly, aside well, from being lucky. Yeah, I love mortars, but uh, smoke rounds are, are garbage. I will say without a doubt my MVP of the tournament was my heavy mortar because that thing was incredible. If nothing lucky. else, it was the only thing. Just lucky? No, I think the heavy mortar actually benefits from some things that people kind of overlook. Mine was only 67 points. I think it was 67 points for a regular regular heavy mortar with a spotter. I think made it like it made a, it might have been 77 points. It was somewhere in that range. It was fairly inexpensive, but the extra pins that it generates were significant. I, I feel like people kind of overlooked that, and it's the four-inch pie plate. So you're hitting an entire unit, and okay, I only do three or four casualties, but I just put three pins on you too. You're, you're not the D6 pins that it does. Yeah, D6 pins. Yeah, so you're adding a lot of pins. So all of a sudden, that unit isn't moving, which means you're hitting on a 5 next round or a 4, and if they can't move, it keeps happening over and over again. You will basically destroy whatever unit you want gone. Or if you draw that, draw that order dice before the next, in the first and next turn. Well, even I, I've been finding even if, I, even if I don't get the order dice first is that that unit is usually the one that they neglect, right? They'll, they're like, well, it's got four pins on it. I need to deal with something else first. And I'm presenting a lot of other things that they have to deal with too. So, uh, cause the Puma or the Panzer are both bigger targets than that unit that they're trying to get moved. And, and maybe that's where my flaw is, but I, I'm finding that it's kind of an interesting choice and don't discount the four inch pie plate. I think it's a big deal. Yeah, I'm going to bump in there and tell you, my, I brought a light mortar of all things, uh, and that thing did yeoman's work for me. I mean, it. I, I got one time I got a lucky hit on a six, and then it was ranged in, and I could just pound that unit down. You know, otherwise it presents uh, something that gets people moving out of cover. So I would take my experience in this turn to be that I don't think I would bring artillery pieces necessarily, and I would bring mortars, especially because of the minimum indirect fire ranges are so long on artillery now. Whereas with mortars, they're all a minimum of 12 inches. So that's that's huge in a game. For my part, um, I went back and forth initially in my list design between MMG and uh, medium MMG. Well, yeah, that's what an MMG is, and a medium mortar. And I was leaning towards um, medium MM, or MMGs because they got the extra shot in this round of rules. Um, but now that you know, I'm getting farther along in the game and putting my list together. I find myself taking more infantry units with more more guys and kind of swarming a board as best I can, which really limits the fire on my MMGs. And so I found actually that my mortars with the indirect fire um, was actually doing better for me. Now I wouldn't. I, I'm not taking mortars in any of my any of my infantry units because I'm going to keep them cheap as chips. But 
Um, yeah, for me, it's I think it's medium orders all the way for my um, for my teams, my small teams. Plus, they can hold an objective, uh, especially if you're, you're you're applying pressure on that side of the board by moving forward. So, yeah, I'm I'm a mortar guy. So, mortar by shots, not by smoke. Correct. Yes. Yeah, even I know Jeff made up all those sweet smoke templates, but I was telling him, no, no smoke, no good. <laughs> yeah, the only round I ever actually got to fire, because there's only one turn where I didn't have a better target for my mortar uh, than to fire a smoke round. It just ended up back in my own face. So it's garbage. Smoke's garbage. Mortar rounds for high explosive, thumbs up. Mortar rounds for smoke, garbage. If you're lucky, mortar rounds are great. If you're not so much lucky in the category, then don't bother. I think there's a way to play them without having to necessarily be lucky. As long as you can pin a unit down long term, I think you're. It, they're still very nice to have. And I, and like to Jeff's point, even if they don't do anything, they're still a deterrent from you standing put. Right? Like nobody's going to sit in that building if you're going to keep pounding it with a heavy mortar or even a medium mortar. Uh, it'll keep people moving. Well, the medium mortar with a two-inch template is still going to wound on twos. Yep. Against, Correct. Or, yeah. So that's that's something to be said about that, because I know most tournaments are always veteran heavy. So there's something to be said to that as well. Correct. Yeah. Never pass up a bonus to wound ever. You need every one you can get. Never pass up a chance to roll a dice. Period. Yeah. Totally. Seeing as I think we've covered all the topics that we want to cover, I think we can call it a night. Um, you can find us on the web, on the web at the snafupodcast.com, uh, on iTunes and any other place you can find podcasts. I don't even know where the hell those places are, but we're using a system that lets us publish to all of them at once. Anyway, we will hopefully be back in a couple of weeks. We do have a, a short break in here because some of us will be going to a large, tur- or I won't call it large, a tournament in Wisconsin called Wapaka. And after that, I actually have a couple of vacations planned in there as well. So we will see you again in a hopefully a short, few short weeks, and I will promise to publish this one in time. Pat, I will edit it and get it out there just for you. Ouch. And then not telling. And then not, I won't tell any of you guys that it actually gets published. Correct. Yeah, snafu over and out, right? That's right. Hey, you got it. Snafu over and out. Don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away So will you please say hello the folks that I know tell them I won't be long they'll be happy to know that as you saw me go I was singing this song we meet again don't know where don't know where but I know Some sunny day We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know where